0: Odd Conduit Media. The Sandman Unlocked.
1: Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co hosts, Ashley, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman, issue 15, Into the Night. I'm joined by some talking money boys, my co host, Sean.
2: <laughs> hey there, money boys.
1: <laughs> and Ben.
2: Are you part of the cuckoo?
1: <laughs> You'll
2: never know. <laughs> On each episode, we'll deconstruct the issue in six separate sections. First, we got the rundown where we let you know who created the issue and then the catch up to be sure you know where we are in the story. Next, we'll do the breakdown. We give you a synopsis of that week's issue and we'll follow that up with the deep dive where we really get into everything that happened. And in our last two sections, we'll discuss our favorite panel and our favorite non-Morpheus character. And this week we are joined by
3: Jonesy. Jonesy is a long-term podcaster who has made his bones as the least popular host of the comics pod Paper Keg. Currently, he co-hosts Twin Vipers, a podcast about martial arts and action movies. Jonesy, how are you this evening?
4: Thank you. Thank you so much. You can fact check that. I am voted the least popular host of Paper Keg. That's a legacy title. Uh, that I still <laughs> hold on to this, <laughs> to this day. And thank you for having me. You know, uh, we covered Sandman a couple times on Paper Keg, and it's been really a pleasure to come back and revisit.
3: Excellent, excellent. So you had mentioned that your background with the Sandman, you covered a bit in the Paper Keg. Had you experienced it and enjoyed it before you had read it for the Paper Keg?
4: So no, I, I was actually a, a Neil Gaiman virgin prior to my reading mm. of the Sandman. Um, and I think the only thing... That I'd known him from prior to that was American Gods. I read the novel, um, mm-hmm. over one summer and then unfortunately he wasn't really on my radar. And then when we read, uh, the three volumes of paper K, I was like, Oh, this guy can write really well. And, uh, I started to follow his career after that. So Sam Ed for paper K was like the the foot in the door moment for me to kind of get involved.
3: Very cool, very cool. We're really excited to have you here with us on Man, this. I am so
4: sorry to hear you say that. I mean, this <laughs> must be a rough day for you guys if this is if this is the, the top of the day. I've
3: been I've been gearing up all day. I've been getting hyped. So
1: well, there you have it. We have six sections to get through. So let's get going. Ben, over to you for the rundown.
3: Thanks, Ashley. So episode 15 was released January 27th, 1990. It is part of the Doll's House storyline. It is the penultimate issue. It was written by Neil Gaiman. Penciler was Mike Dringenberg. Cover by Dave McKeon. Inker, Malcolm Jones III. Colorist for the original version, Robbie Bush. That's all we talk about. Letterer, Todd Klein. (laughs) And editor was Karen
2: Berger. Sean, why don't you catch us up? All right, so... We're following the story of Rose Walker, a young woman who also happens to be a dangerous and powerful entity known as a Dream Vortex. Unbeknownst to her, this mysterious status makes her of interest to Morpheus, the Dream King, who plans to use Rose to attract four residents of the Dreaming who have gone missing during his long absence. When we meet Rose, she's traveling to England with her mother at the behest of a mysterious benefactor who, she learns, is actually her grandmother, Unity Kincaid, a victim of the sleepy sickness. While exploring her home, Rose is visited by the Hecate, who cryptically warn her to stay away from dolls, houses, Morpheus, the Corinthian, a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, Rose, of course, does the exact opposite as she travels to Florida to find her missing brother, Jed, uh, lodging at a boarding house with Hal, her lovable drag queen landlord, Ken and Barbie, a frustratingly normal couple who complete each other's sentences. The Spider-Women, who wear white gowns and veils and collect stuffed spiders, and Gilbert, a lovable old guy who is the spitting image of G.K. Chesterton. Jed, meanwhile, is stuck living with two abusive relatives while at the same time having his mind used as a psychic vacation home by two of the escaped nightmares, Brute and Glob, and a couple of wayward superheroes, Hector and Lyta, one of whom is actually dead... Uh, Morpheus, having followed Rose's search for her brother, discovers that they've been hired, uh, where they've been hiding. Excuse me, and frees Jed, captures Bruton Glob, demands Hector stop being a ghost, and tells Lyda he's going to take her baby, Rumpelstiltskin style. So even though Rose and Gilbert learn from private detectives where her brother was staying, she's too late, as he's already gone straight from his abusive relatives into the arms of the Corinthian, a serial killer and one of Dream's missing nightmares. They all end up at a hotel together during a legit serial killer convention. And after Rose calls Morpheus to help her, based on a tip from Gilbert, Morpheus steps in and saves Rose, uncreates the Corinthian, and makes a cool speech about how serial killing is bad. Gilbert then discovers Jed, and he and Rose call an ambulance to care for the unconscious boy. And while all this is going on, we also take some time out to learn that Morpheus is a terrible boyfriend to Nada and a slightly better friend to Hobgadling. All right, Ashley, break it down for us.
1: All right. Thank you, Sean. We enter with Rose having just returned from being with Jed at the hospital. We learn that Jed has a concussion, is severely dehydrated, and out cold. Coincidentally, we learn that their grandmother, Unity Kincaid, is also ill, under the watch of Rose's mom. Though her housemates attempt to console her, Rose is much changed, finding little comfort in their companionship. She struggles with sleep, while the whole house rests and the reader is treated to each occupant's own dream. Morpheus recognizes the signs of the manifestation of Rose's vortex powers and sends Matthew ahead to the mortal realm to sit with Jed and fetch Gilbert, who has gone to visit Jed himself. Rose explores her new sense of self, pushing against the barriers separating the dreamers, pulling them to herself and changing the dreamers as she does so. Morpheus reaches her seemingly just in time and separates her from the unintended victims, flying her to a remote rock structure so they can, as he ominously says, talk. A page later, as Matthew arrives to the hospital, we learn from Gilbert that talk really means terminate her physical existence, and the reader is left to consider the fate of Vortex Rose Walker.
0: Do you fondly remember blowing the dust out of a golden Nintendo cartridge to get it to work? Get the dust out of it. Alright, here we go. Yes, let's get it! Now the screen's gray. Aw man! Or those long nights when you were up late fighting Ganon and you'd hear your mom coming downstairs. Hello? that's mom. Uh, pretend you're asleep. Wait, pause it! Pause it! Turn off the TV! Do you Shh, think she's don't gone? Make a sound? Hmm, I thought I heard two boys down here. Oh well. Well, Ben and Pat are here to transport you back to those exhilarating moments as the Hyrule <gasps> Podcaster. Join the two brothers each week as they play through Zelda games in Nintendo's legendary series. Episodes are filled with color commentary, lightly researched facts, personal anecdotes, and more. Hyrule Podcasters is available through Anchor on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Hyrule Podcasters on Facebook and Instagram at Hyrule Podcasters and on Twitter at Hyrule Podcasters.
3: Amazing. Thank you, Ashley, for that great breakdown. All right, so let's hop right into our deep dive with the three of you. Uh, So we got easily one of the most quoted posters that you have ever seen in a Christian church book store in your entire life uh it was alluded to if you didn't if you didn't catch on to it that's okay it was right there uh ashley talk to us about footprints in the sand
1: man i i so promised i wasn't gonna do this and i was just <laughs> looking up the author because i'm curious and then it sucked me in and i'm so sorry yeah. i apologize to everybody um but yes in the second page zelda and Chantel uh reference this um this poem or this rather this homily that she mentions, which is an interesting uh, definition of or use of homily in that case. That's not actually what a homily is, but it's fine. I'll set that aside for now. Um, Discussing God, a difficult, a difficult time and a variable number of footprints in the sand. So if you, your grandmother has never given you uh, you a bookmark that has this on it, (laughs) Uh, you know, you've really missed out on a, on a great time the homily that she's referencing is actually a poem called footprints and i i got sucked into the story of this poem one because i remember having a bookmark and then also was like yeah who was that by and found a a complete black hole of information and misinformation that just really bled me dry all weekend. So let's this get started. Is
3: gonna turn into a spin-off podcast series? This, this is gonna all... become
1: another Four Popes situation. Um, <laughs> 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 so there are at least four different people that sincerely believe themselves to be the authors of Footprints. And yet all authors who claim authorship have specific memories of the precise moment that they dreamed up its verse. We'll start with the first.
2: Was it like one was like one was writing and the other three were like carrying that
1: person or <laughs>
2: <laughs> sorry, I, that that would maybe be... a little bit of a stretch, I
1: thought no, I'd it's go okay. for it. man, that would make it even better. Unfortunately not. No, we'll start with Mary Stevenson. Mary Stevenson was a former showgirl turned nurse.
4: Isn't that an age old story? <laughs> I know. Sorry.
1: Tale as old as time, uh, I think Angela Lansbury said once, and uh, in her biography, she says she composed the poem in 1936 after the death of her mother and father. Uh, It was inspired by a cat's footprints in the snow, and she was so proud of it that she wrote it down and handed it out to anybody she met without signing her name. So she's just passing this out as she was going and meeting people. Then enter Burl Webb, a retired landscape artist living in Oregon. He says he composed the lines in 1958 after leaving the Navy and being dumped by his girlfriend. Quote, I was stressed, distressed, and single. When I received those divine words, I broke up the lines and made a kind of poem out of it. Published it anonymously in a local paper after that. Just didn't think anything of it. Just wanted to share it with the world. And then 40 years later in 1998, his son comes up to him and says, uh, Dad, I, that poem that you wrote all that time ago, yeah, that's on like napkins and calendars and posters, what gives? And usually the poem is signed author unknown, but sometimes uh, it's signed as three other authors, um, including sometimes Mary Stevenson, even though she had never claimed it for herself at the time. And with no way to prove the work was his, he paid $400 for a polygraph test so that when anyone questions his claim on the poem, he then sends them the results of the polygraph test to try to prove that he wrote it. Now we got Carolyn Joyce Cardi, and she's, this is, this is where it gets like real, not so crazy. So she is, quite possibly the most hostile of the claimants. Uh, she frequently issues cease and desist letters to those who post the poem online, signing her emails and I quote, world-renowned poet. Uh, she is a self-proclaimed child prodigy and a poet laureate. She's not. She claims to have written the uh, poem Footprints in 1963 when she was six uh, her, so she says her grandmother actually wrote it first in 1922 and then she did. And then, uh, Washington post journalist, Hank Stuver, in an attempt to interview her through email said, it is unclear if Cardi understands what it means to have written something.
4: And I just really <laughs> enjoyed that
1: quote a lot. Uh, she also claims to have written the lyrics to in my life, uh, before the Beatles did. So she, um, <laughs> has a lot of claims. Uh, but oh, she's I thought the most you were going to say, it's my
4: life by Bon Jovi for a second.
1: <laughs> no, that would be even better. I, called, just for oh one second, I'd
4: be like, oh my God, this, I, it, I need to meet this woman right now.
3: <laughs> she's a Jersey girl throwing through. What can you say?
1: Oh, I guess. But yeah, she is the most aggressive of the claimants to this poem. And then we get to, finally, Margaret Fishback Powers, who is probably, if, if Cardi was the most aggressive, Powers was uh, the most effective in her claim. Uh, So she's a Canadian Baptist children's evangelist. And in her author's bio, she says she wrote the poem in 1964. So you see all these dates starting to like run together. You've got 1958 with Webb, 1963 with Cardi, and 1964 with Powers. She says she wrote the poem in 1964 while on the shore of a lake at a youth camp, searching for direction at a crossroads in her life. And she sold her version of the poem to HarperCollins back in 1992 in a book deal, along with an autobiographical account of how she wrote it. She then went on to sell it to 30 other companies, including Hallmark and Lennox Gifts. Mm. So that's why you see it printed on everything. And then in her memoir, she lists that she was struck by, so you know how all these people are like, I, I wrote this poem out of hardship, I was dealing with stuff, I, I had loss in my life. Well, I think to try to emphasize that she has a claim on the meaning of this poem, she lists all of the bad things that have happened to her in her memoir. And it, is, <laughs> it includes <clears throat> being struck by lightning, uh, developing spinal meningitis. Getting hit by a truck, and then nearly dying from a bee sting, and then on top of that, her daughter gets crushed by a motorcycle, and then slips down a sixty-eight foot waterfall, and then while her daughter slips down this waterfall, her husband sees this and has a heart attack.
3: Wow! Yeah, he's going to need to be carried for a long time.
4: Yeah. Oh
1: yeah, the piggybacks for days. Yeah. Uh, I'm so sure then... there was
4: ever two sets of footprints in her life. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So then while her family is in the hospital and her daughter and her husband are recovering, a nurse comes in and in an attempt to comfort the family, pulls footprints out of her pocket and reads it to them. And she's after she reads it, she says, like, I'm so sad that we don't know who wrote this beautiful poem. And the husband wakes up and goes, my wife did. Um, but the fact that she had a copy that was Author Unknown suggests that she has either one of Webb's or one of Stevenson's copies of the poem, um, not one of the ones that, that Powers had claim. So Powers' lawyer then, John A. Hughes, one, refuses to state how much money she has earned from these publications, but likens it to the excess, <laughs> and I quote, likens it to the success of the Star-Spangled Banner. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then he has written to more than a hundred other companies asking them to replace author unknown with power's name. He also considered hiring Donald Foster, the forensic literary scientist who studied the Unabomber letters, to prove that Mary Stevenson could not have written them.
4: So this two is things. The
1: extent. Yeah,
4: I- I'd like to apologize to you for all the work you had to do to uh, compile that list. That sounds mm-hmm. exhausting. Oh, and two, yeah. wouldn't it be awesome if the nurse that took the poem out was also the stripper turned nurse <laughs> from the first
1: Wow! Yeah.
4: to bring it all full oh, circle? Because I think all four cannon. are fictional. I that can can't imagine. Now.
1: I know. I know. I would love to meet these people and just go like, so what's going on here? Um, and hilariously, so it wasn't until like 2008 that these copyright claims started coming up and they were trying to dispute them. And so it's actually Mary Stevenson's son that has been trying to go to bat for her claim being the oldest claim because she had been advised by a lawyer like maybe a few years after she had written it not to try to claim it at all. And so then that's why someone else was able to capitalize on what was potentially, potentially her authorship. Um, And it's so... Writer Rachel Aviv mentions, and she has this this quote about this whole debacle that's really interesting. She said, the verse is so dislocated from context, so familiar and predictable that the boundary between writing and reading seems to disappear, which considering the content of this issue, I thought was kind of interesting because Rose pushes against the boundaries of all the consciousness of all the dreamers and such. And um, she talks about uh, psychologist Carl Carl Jung, um, who who has written papers about accidental plagiarism and suggests that it's impossible to know which ideas are entirely ours. And so when you come to like a religious work of um of poetry it's easy then to not remember what was originally sort of like your inspiration or your communication with God, as opposed to like what you've probably just been exposed to via other versions of like religious texts and such. Mm. And that all, and it's, and it's particularly interesting because all iterations of the poem poem open with a variation of, The first line being like, I had a dream, or one night a man had a dream, or one night I had a dream. Some variation of, someone had a dream at some point, and it involved being on a beach and walking with Jesus. But they were able to sort of distill this down into one of the clearest historical inspirations for the poem that they think, which comes from an 1880 sermon by Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, who... In this sermon says, and did you ever walk out upon that lonely desert island upon which you were wrecked and say, I'm alone, I'm alone, alone. Nobody was ever here before me. And did you suddenly pull up short as you noticed in the sand the footprints of a man? I remember right well passing through that experience. And when I looked lo, it was not merely the footprints of a man I saw, but I thought I knew those feet had left those imprints. They were the marks of the one who had been crucified for there are the prints of the nails. So I thought to myself, if he has been here, it is a desert island no longer. So it's probable that going all the way back to Mary Stevenson, she could have come across that at some point or some preacher because materials were cycled some baptist preacher had read that sermon because there are historic books of of people's sermons throughout history read that in their studies sort of regurgitated it in some way she heard that at some point was like oh that's kind of a pretty thought wrote something and then disseminated it and then everyone thought it was their original idea um it has been used in uh Popular music. There was a pop song sung by Leona Lewis, who uh, had that song written for her by Simon Cowell. Hilarious! I will never let him live it down if I ever meet him. Wow. Um, and then also, the poem inspired uh, the song and chorus for the G Unit song "Footprints" uh, from their two thousand three <laughs> debut album "Beg for Mercy." <laughs>
4: <If> <laughs> and that were, is the pendulum swung far. Oh, on that yeah. One.
1: Big yeah, big time. So that is the that is the untold saga of footprints in the sand. Thank you, Grandma.
4: You
3: know something wow. else, uh, Sandy and Christiany is the story of like the sand dollar, and I always like connected oh, like yeah, the sand dollar like that. story, like and the footprint story is like kind of one and the same. That the, the the dried up dead animal of the sand dollar represents like the different stages of like, but it's there and there's like <laughs> like look like we're combining here we're. We're combining texts out there. And the I think
1: world. if you do go to Florida, you can get like a sand dollar oh, that's yeah. like attached to a bookmark Absolutely. version. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's love what we can bastardize. There's no end. Sky's <laughs> the limit. I'm so proud. So
2: Ashley, do you have a, do you have a theory? Like who, who wrote it? you think it? it was? Yeah.
1: Oh gosh. As <laughs> I, I would love it to be Cardi because I think it'd be hilarious if it did end up being the woman who calls herself a child prodigy. I would just find that so funny, like so infinitely funny. My, truly my hypothesis is that Mary Stevenson had truly heard some sermon somewhere where a minister like recycled material from Spurgeon. Um, and then, or someone else did and she heard it and thought it sounded pretty and kind of jotted it down. And it matriculated that way where I really do think if you follow, um, if you follow the dates of when people claim to have written it, it makes sense. And again, like when you meet people and you know enough people, you you see how certain information even before the internet age disseminates and people just like share stuff that they think is neat You'll, we all have those grandparents that have, like, you know, trunks of stuff. they like, I just thought this was a neat thing. Here, you can have it now. And I'm like, I don't want this. It's
2: Clipped out family circus cartoons and stuff like yes, that. Yes, yeah.
1: exactly. Exactly. And so it would not shock me for, for these people to have just come across things like this and gone like, oh, this is neat. Put it away. And then in a time of distress, our memories link that to... Mm. A piece of writing that refers to a hard time and being comforted in a hard time and interpreting that as inspiration. Now, personal opinion, do I think that you can be like reminded of stuff that is comforting and it can, you know, (laughs) bring down your blood pressure in times of distress? Yeah, sure. You know, and if you want to call that divine inspiration, fine. Just maybe don't pass it off as your own work. Maybe be more discerning than that. Um, But I really do think it was probably Mary Stevenson and she's just too humble to have like really gone for it. You know, she doesn't seem like the opportunist type. Uh,
4: I have a confession. It was me. I wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) I've been biding my time. (laughs) (laughs) And also, you guys don't deserve Ashley. I have a sweat from how much (laughs) research it must have taken you to write all that.
1: Oh no, it's just you know, when you find something real goofy online, you just keep following until the threads dry up. Yeah. So
4: you, you just you pulled a thread and you decided not to stop. <laughs> oh, no,
1: yeah. not at all. Like the no. uh like the occidental
3: schism of uh 1384.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes
3: just... you just
2: stumble into it.
1: So many popes. Oh, I feel like so many footprints. I feel like the closest
2: I came to that was reading like the nineteen seventy Sandman. <laughs> it's just like not on the same level. <laughs> I thought you're. Um, I would definitely put it
3: up there. The work you did around the um, Little Nemo. Um,
1: yes. Who is that? Who's that? Oh, author? yeah. Lindsay
2: McKay, my boy.
1: That was pretty I still good. Have, I still have a tab yeah. open from that conversation when you were starting yeah. to tell me where to start with that. That was one of my favorites.
3: <laughs> well, we'll keep tuning our own horn here in front of Jonesy and, uh, and slide on over uh, Sean. So it looked like you wanted to. Pull at a bunch of different items uh, again and have some thematic reflections
2: for us. Yes, we got some thematic reflections here. And, you know, we were like talking a little bit before this started, um, before we started recording. And, you know, I was just saying how just kind of wonderful the storyline is. Like it, it never really came together for me um, before this reading that we're doing now. Um And I'm noticing for the first time just, like, what a remarkable leap forward it was from Preludes and Nocturnes. Like, that's a wonderful book. It's a great, fun, clever book. But there's layers to the doll's house that the first storyline doesn't even come close to. And it's been great to, like, reread and discover this stuff, uh, honestly, for the first time for me. So I want to keep digging in uh, to this, to these topics that I've sort of been exploring week after week, right? I've been taking us through the chapters of the doll's house and I've been using these symbolic figures of dolls and houses to guide us through the themes, right? So I was talking about, you know, like dolls are, they're ways of playing pretend, they're, you know, fantasies that allow us to sort of explore, but to do it like safely and protected and to kind of keep our walls up because there's no real risk of consequences. You know, they allow us to like practice at relationships without harming someone uh, that you would think of as, you know, an equal. Um, but, you know, in the story, we're also seeing things like people treating others as dolls, relations of domination, manipulating people and things like that. And then I've been thinking about Talking about houses to, you know, uh, the walls of houses. They offer protection from the elements and things that threaten us. But they're also these enclosures that divide us and keep us separate from one another uh, and the world. And so I've been kind of like, you know, exploring those concepts as we go through all this. We've seen all these examples, but here in this chapter, this is where I think the walls, you know, come tumbling down as they do in the story. And these sort of symbolic figures reveal the meaning beneath them, right? And so this is my interpretation of the meaning, you know, you could have a one that's totally different and equally valid, um, but here's where Neil Gaiman lays his cards on the table to my thinking. Um, so, you know, I'm reading this issue and I'm thinking like, this is what it's all about, right? This is an issue exemplary of the story in the sense that it's about navigating boundaries, right? It's about this painful and and joyful drawing and redrawing of the line between me and you, you know, and kind of what greater question is there as we grow up. Um, And it seems to be arguing, I think, that the only tool we have to accomplish this task is art itself, and most specifically storytelling. You know, it's this exchange of stories. We saw it start off the whole thing, right? Tales in the sand. Doll's house starts off with an exchange of stories. And the, the, the grandfather to the grandson is, becomes a man. And it'll end in the next issue with an exchange of stories too. And this exchange, it's really the only tool we have as these finite limited beings to address the problem of intersubjective knowledge. So it's like, you know, how do you know me? How do I know you? Can you ever really know another person? But Neil Gaiman doesn't stop there because he's too good for that, right? He doesn't just say like, oh, here's the answer. It's stories like he's like season 9 Game of Thrones or something, because there's danger in stories too. You can become lost in them, like Hector and Lyda, or you can allow them to blind you like the collectors. or you can give too much in exchange for them, like Shakespeare, or you can give too little like dream. And so this is why this story, I think, is really, it's Rose's story. And as a salty aside, this is why the TV show version just kind of didn't come together for me, because like TV Rose has these healthy boundaries, and it just can't work that way to tell this story. I think we need writer Rose. We need confused, lonely, mistrustful Rose to explore these ideas through. So let's start... With taking a look back at Rose's relationships that we know of. So we know of one friend she had, right? It was Judy who died in 24 hours and she calls Rose from the diner. Uh, and in the, in the next issue after this, when you learn that Judy wasn't just her friend, but her best friend, and we know Rose's mom, and this is not a mom's your best friend type deal. Like it's not like they're antagonistic to each other at all, but they aren't particularly close she seems to have like kind of a distant affection for her mother. Like she cares for, her, but it's not like she's sharing her innermost thoughts with her. And even in this issue, she doesn't wish her mom was there, like Unity does. You know, like like Unity will will you know wish that her mother was there with her. Their parents were there with her because it would make um, you know what she goes through easier. Rose wishes her mom was there in her place, right? And then, of course, when we first meet him, they're not even sitting next to each other on the plane. They're like, there's like a seat between them. Then there's her dad, who we infer was not a good guy to the point that Rose would have refused to go to his funeral had she known about it. And there's Jed, who she hasn't seen in seven years, and she isn't really sure that they'd even recognize each other. But she did like travel across the world to look for him. You know, she like threw herself into that task of tracking him down. So credit there. And there's Unity, who she accepts as her grandmother with like certainty, but without sentimentality, you know, you could kind of compare her response of just being like, Oh yeah, it's true. That's my grandmother to her mother's like this, like sort of more cheerful uh, emotional reaction. And then there's like, there's Hal and the other borders of the house uh, who she looks at with a kind of like bemused tolerance. You know, she has a certain affection for Hal. And then there's Gilbert who, <laughs> you know, who she actually seems closest to of anyone in the book, but, He's not even a person. He's like a dream place pretending to be a person. So I think that says something about her, you know, and her levels of comfort with people. So all in all, Rose is not close to people. And I don't mean that as like a criticism of her as a character um, because she doesn't seem to really like know how to be close to people or whether she even wants to. Um, You know, in fact, like Neil Gaiman, talented author, uh, he knows that old rule about like show, don't tell in fiction, but almost everything we learn about Rose as a character is via her internal monologue rather than her actions or her interactions with other characters. And that makes her like this really passive protagonist. And that also kind of explains why her probably her, her you know, TV equivalent um, was so different because you can't really have a super passive protagonist in a TV show. Nice. Um, but it it makes sense in the book when you keep in mind that Rose is going to grow and change based on her experiences. Her passivity, her isolation is all building to this moment where she breaks down all the walls and forces the characters to make their motivations clear.
3: It's really powerful, right? Yeah, yeah. To have it set up that way where you have all this passiveness that then leads to this like outburst of... Of of kinetic energy.
2: Yeah, she's done almost nothing throughout this series, really. She's, uh, you know, even finding Jed. Like, that was private detectives. You found Jed, you know? And so, you know, we can think about how Rose's actions in this issue can be seen not just as her sort of vortex-ness coming to fruition, but as a reaction to what we've seen before. Because all we really have in the doll's house up to this point are examples of really crap relationships. You know, we got Dream and Nada, Hector and Lida... Jed and his aunt and uncle and so on with like Dream and Hob is maybe the only exception. And that is the centerpiece of the entire, you know, storyline. It's like the middle issue. And there's what I've been ranting about this whole time with like dolls and houses and walls and manipulations. And all of that comes to a head in the collector's issue, right? And it's maybe best exemplified by those obscene violations of the bonds of trust in the Little Red Riding Hood story that Gilbert tells. Um, And then, of course, you know, like, Funland tries to kill her and everything. So after going through all that, here she's like, you know what, F this, no more secrets, no more illusions, no more isolation. And she really thinks of this as, uh, you know, what she's doing by trying to, like, kind of merge all these dreams together, um, all these secret lives. She thinks of it as a gift to the world, you know, and it makes perfect sense when you see what she's been to. Like we were saying, for the first time in the story, she actually does something. She kind of like defines herself through the creative act, right? She says, everything seems so real, so vivid, more true and more vital than anything in the waking world. Her sense of identity has never been so certain. She can feel her sleeping body on the bed below her. It's no part of her, the essential her, the true rose. And she goes through each of her housemates' dreams on that weird page with a sort of like isometric image of the house. And she sees all of them, quote, seeking a place to belong, all of them seeking a place to be safe. And she sees how simple it all is. See how thin and fragile the, world, the walls that divide them truly are. Sees how simple it would be to shatter them. She reaches out her mind and nudges and the walls, the walls come tumbling down. And when I was reading this the first time, I was kind of like, I was like you know, hell yeah, actually, that would be kind of great. Like, we could all use a vortex here. You know, I didn't really, like, understand, like, why is that bad? Why does it hurt the dreaming? Isn't it good to bring down barriers between people? And isn't that kind of like the function of art itself, right? It's to grasp at an understanding beyond the narrow realm of personal experience. You know, and keep in mind again, Rose wants to be a writer. So you know, looked at in this way, Rose's first real action, in the entire story, is this explosion of the vortex coming into fruition, this fundamentally creative act that also inevitably includes, you know, some element of destruction. Because in this it's in the Sandman, there's always this sort of dual elements of, of creation and destruction. You can't really have one without the other, and that'll like bear itself out throughout the rest of the series. You know, she becomes clear to herself for the first time in this act as the vortex and compare that to Morpheus, right? His identity is his role. He is dream. And he hasn't figured out how to reach, you know, beyond his much broader, but still ultimately individual understanding Mm -hmm. because like the cost is too great for him. And, uh, I read an essay and it, it was about a later issue in the series. It's called, uh, of stories and storytellers It's by Joe Sanders And he writes that the normal human condition, as Gaiman sees it, is a nervous estrangement from other humans and from ourselves. With one part of our soul, we want to escape that isolation. Yet we're frightened of trying. Rather than reinforcing that fear by attacking it directly, art helps us step outside the supposed limits of ourselves so that we can better see present realities and new possibilities. I like that. But that step outside itself is a perilous one. And we see characters fall prey to it throughout the series. So think of how quick Shakespeare was uh, to bargain with dream for the chance to tell great stories and what the costs of that may be. So here then we have these two levels of intersecting concerns happening here. Like one's a concern with the nature of art and storytelling. And another is about intimacy between people, about navigating these boundaries and, you know, who we open ourselves up to and what the dangers are. So this is why I think the borders dreams are significant in the story and why Niels shows us their reactions after waking. Right. Cause I also think Neal's making like a three level pun on the meaning of borders, right? There's people staying in a house, there's mm. boundaries, and then there's the edge of the comics panels themselves. For sure. So for, for, Chantal and Zelda, it brings them closer, right? There's that key moment that really uh that was really excellently done in the TV series. Mm. Like when Zelda is able to, you know, Chantel's kind of caught in that like Mobius strip of the story. It's like, mate, tell me a story, blah blah blah. Um and she breaks through that to her by adding another story, right? It's the exchange of stories. Um, and coincidentally, that line uh that Zelda tells Chantel about the little boy pulling up to a, like a hall in Lincolnshire or something. The little um, boy that...
3: who jumped out as soon as it had stopped, look around him mm-hmm. with the keenest curiosity during the short interval.
2: Yes. That is from uh, an Mr. James short story called lost hearts, which is the title of the next issue. But yeah, that's just trivia. Okay. So for <laughs> Barbie and Ken for now, maybe it'll be important next issue. I don't know yet. <laughs> For Barbie and Ken, (laughs) it produces estrangement, you know? I love, like, the visual contrast between their dreams. It's, like, these, like, really thick, brutal, sort of inarticulate lines for Ken. There's lots of inky darkness and all that. And then there's this kind of refined, like, high fantasy and elaborate inner life uh, for Barbies. So, you know, I think where this is going is that the the revelation produced by art or dreams is no guarantee of peace or happiness. Um, and it could just as easily result in destruction. And one of the things
3: I really love about, just to pull you back 10 seconds to Barbie's dream, mm-hmm. is we see the inclusion of a border around her panels. And that was something that we had talked about way back in the very first issue that we covered, where the border is where, where when you have that introduction of like magic and arcanum in the like comic coming in that isn't just
2: Morpheus. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's got that. So it's like almost shaped like a tower and it's got that kind of gilded edge to Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. 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 Uh Yeah. So anyway, that's sort of where I landed on this issue and all the things it kind of brought up for me.
3: Well, thank you, Sean, for all that. And I, and I do think the continual discovery of the repetition of these thematic ideas throughout really kind of help pull it all together. And you only get that by doing the, the close reading work that can be really enjoyable in a, in a time like this, like when you have the the opportunity to expand on it.
0: Yeah. I
2: was, I was trying to like, I was trying to bring in some other weird ideas into this that I kept just trying to like shoehorn in while I was researching and it just never came together. So I was like, you know what? Close reading. Let's go with a close reading.
3: <laughs>
2: Excellent. Um, and then,
3: Jonesy, let's pitch over to you. I think you had something to wrap us up with.
4: Man, that is so intimidating to have to speak after Sean. Holy smokes, uh, I cannot stack up against the academ- uh, academia. But you know, hopefully in my own way, I'll try to add something. Sean, I felt got myself that Bernie nodding. Bernie and shine. <laughs> I do. So I have a great Bernie anecdote um, that I kind of got to mentally, like going over this issue. Uh, you know, I'm when I was reading this book and kind of. Getting over superheroes, and and not in a negative way, but um, these kind of books, along with books like I mentioned, pre-show, planetary, um, kind of got me into lore, and Neil Gaiman is like a lore fanatic. I mean, if you've ever read his Norse mythology book, I mean, his love for stories and how they mutate over the years is very strong. And I kind of had that in my head the whole time rereading this issue and the first two volumes really for the show. Um, But what really like struck me, and if you have the volume up, it's page 182. um, It's where Matthew returns to to speak to Morpheus. And it's a direct homage to The Crow. I mean, if you ever read James O'Barr's The Crow, not the movie, but the actual comic it's based on, I mean, Morpheus's character model is strikingly similar to Eric Draven. And uh, so Matthew perched next to uh, Morpheus immediately brought me back to the days I I read James O'Barr, who was a contemporary of, of Neil and his books are very lore dominant. You know, he creates his own lore of what the afterlife is and what somebody's purpose is, is is coming back. It's very similar, I would say to the first volume of this book. Um, But, I got into a deep dive of trying to find where the lines crossed. Did Neil uh, and James know each other? um, Or was this just an homage of someone being a fan? Uh, And as I was reading, um, something I didn't know was Bernie Wrightson was a mentor of uh, James Abar who created the crow. And he was the one who suggested that James uh, redraw the character the same scene over and over again, as he got better uh, so he could track his own progress, and uh, that really brought a smile to my face because I had the opportunity to meet Bernie with the other two hosts of uh, Paper Keg, which is a, a podcast I I kind of cut my teeth on. And um, we were in the Marriott uh, in Baltimore for the Comic Con, and um, we through the show became you know acquaintances and friends with. Um, Scotty Young, who's a a comic book uh, artist, he does uh, I Hate Fairyland and uh, a lot of great material. And so we were kind of headed that way to meet up with him after the Eisners. And in the cocktail lounge outside the door is Bernie and his wife and they're vaping. And I'd never seen anyone vape before, uh, (laughs) let alone indoors. So I I was like flabbergasted. But, you know, being fans of recognizing Bernie, we just kind of were like, hey – just trying to do the whole like, hey, we don't want to bother you. We're just fans type of thing. And and I think we had just done Swamp Thing for the show. So we were like, hi, I'm mm-hmm. Bernie. And uh, instead of uh, just like like shooing us away, he invited us to have drinks with him and his wife. Yeah. And we were like, okay. So we sat down uh, and we just started shooting the shit with, with Bernie. And uh, he was telling – Great stories about, and I'll, I'll share a couple with you that really blew my mind. Um, because Swamp Thing was not a human, uh, you know, he was never drawn with clothes on, but the comics code was like really in swing back then. And they didn't want to show a man who's obviously a, a man without clothes because they were, you know, thought kids were going to imagine genitalia. So they made, the, he had to wear underwear. So Bernie was like <laughs> getting hot talking about it, even though it was like 30 years later. He's like, if you noticed the cover on issue seven, I draw him with shadow jockey shorts because <laughs> I'll make him wear underwear. And, I mean, but the, the best oh story, and this is, I guess, not really same air related, but I, it still makes me laugh to this day. So uh, in, in case you don't know, uh, Stephen King wanted to option... Uh, Swamp Thing for a movie or a TV show he wanted the rights he was a huge fan so he got Bernie's number allegedly so he worked with him se- yeah 7am the phone rings at Bernie's house he picks up the phone and you know, Mr. Wright said my name is Stephen King I'm interested in buying the rights for um, for Swamp Thing you know I want to fly you out like this could be big for us and Bernie goes so he thinks it's Jim Starlin, his editor at the time. And he's like, Jim, this isn't funny. I don't sleep. Don't call my house. And they, at the time they have been in the middle of a prank war. And so Bernie just thought this was Jim. So he hangs up on Stephen King. A couple minutes goes by, phone rings again. It's Stephen King again. Bernie proceeds to chew him out. So don't you ever call this number again? I'm over it and slams the phone on him. And that's why Stephen King never produced Swamp Thing. It was like, oh. instead of like the the story of everything goes right, it's the story of everything goes wrong. <laughs> but I mean, obviously Bernie that's told hilarious. her a lot better than I just did right then. But I will never forget how kind he was and how open he was. And he didn't care that we were just three schwabs from Philly, you know, kind of on the outskirts of the comic world. To him, you know, you know we, were, we were it. And he was, it's one of the most memorable nights I've ever had in my entire life. And it kind of, just seeing this art and kind of thinking of The Crow and and James Ibarra just brought me back to that moment. So it was kind of a joy to reread this and all those memories start to light up as I'm going through this issue. So, uh, and to, to tie it all back, you know, these guys are all punk, right? These are all into punk rock. Yeah. I mean, uh, and the spiky hair, the makeup, the, you know, the painted nails, the trench coat in the middle of August, like that's the most punk rock thing ever. So <laughs> I think we can, we can thank London Calling and, you know, a lot of uh, punk rock era for all these great memories. So uh, thank you for allowing me to reread this issue. I mean, it's one of the more introspective issues in the whole run, Some I would way. think. Uh, it doesn't, I mean, it advances the story, but really it's about, you know, to Sean's point, it's the grand story that's kind of in all of us that gets revealed here rather than you know is this writing for the trade because thank god that wasn't a thing back then yeah absolutely Mm. i mean who who would have greenlit this in like 2006 or 7 when everybody's writing three issues for the trade no one looks at this issue and says go ahead neil write it i mean this is neil just being like showing off like this is like oh you guys think you can write well well, look at this.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So that's it. I, I know. I feel. I feel. Uh, if you guys no, did all that research. I feel I can't stack up. But
2: no, that's that's yeah. great. And I mean, like, no, you the, like me? Bernie Wrightson. Bernie Wrightson's, you know, all over Sandman. Right? Like, you you wouldn't have. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't have Swamp Thing without Bernie Wrightson. So you wouldn't have Alan Moore working on Swamp Thing. Wouldn't have Neil Gaiman getting back into comics. But even on the art, you know, Sam Keith. Kelly Jones later on. These are children of Bernie, certainly.
4: Yeah, Chris Bocalillo. I forgot that oh, he yeah, got his Chris start Boccalo. in these pages. He was one of my favorite artists.
3: Well, I mean, even in some of the characters, right? Because he worked on House of Mystery and House of Secrets, oh, yeah. which are directly in the comic mm-hmm. with Cain and Abel there, right? So this is all just, you know, a progenitor of so much of what we're reading right now. Uh, as we explore all of this, and
4: the same man makes me like John Constantine, and that's a character I've, uh, I've, <laughs> like, I spent the last thirty years not reading about. <laughs> so you was know, great talking
2: just... with you, Jonesy. We gotta go. But uh, no,
4: I'm just <laughs> Listen, I have to take my character. I had to make a dig at somebody. You know what I mean? Just, <laughs> I can't be all uh, complimentary. No. no.
2: Um, it, and a happy ending to the story, presumably, because Stephen King and Bernie Wrightson ended up collaborating for this weird little yeah. book called Cycle of the Werewolf, um, which I I think I have a copy, copy of around here somewhere. Like, the art is amazing. Story, I, I, th- I think this was like, this might have been like coked out Stephen King era. I'm, I'm not sure. but uh... If
4: there was a different era, please let me know. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, I can't imagine being so self important as to call anybody to talk business at 7 a.m. I don't care. Well, who I think you it was an East Coast, West people. Coast
4: thing. Uh, I don't yeah. really
1: care. You can do that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, can you imagine, like, uh, you know, Stephen hangs up the phone and his wife's like, you know, what'd he say? Said, he told me to go myself <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah. That's too funny yeah i think one of one of the funniest little bits in family guys where they have stephen king with meeting with his like editor and he like he like talks about like the lamp monster is coming like to get you <laughs> he's like i can do 500 words by tomorrow on it like okay <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> oh geez. okay
4: so was pop quiz i'll 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 produce your show for a second favorite stephen king novel go
3: uh, for me, I've, I have not read many, but I have read the entirety of The Dark Tower uh, twice. And my mom is my mom's favorite, and I just love it. So I will, I'll take The Dark Tower.
4: Famously, I've only read the first novel and loved it and never picked up the second one.
3: Mm, mm. Famously, like, yeah, in Alan's your... Yeah, reading those in right Famously, crew. in
4: my own life. I mean, no one oh, okay. thinks I'm famous <laughs> okay. for that. Okay. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
2: Oh, uh, Ashley, what do you got? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, Ashley, uh, okay. All
4: right. Yeah. I'm just looking, uh, I'm going left to right in my screen, which is probably not the way you should do this. So, <laughs> Ashley, please go ahead.
1: Well, I, I grew up h- hilariously. My mom had like a book nook in her living room that had like rows of Stephen King novels and then like two shelves of Bibles. So, it was a very confusing upbringing. Um, and so, I read, um, I, I, what was it that I read? I, oh, I read It like way too young because I just pulled it off the shelf and I was like, oh, a little boat on the the cover. And it's not my favorite though. My favorite, because once I told her, I was like, mom, I read this. She's like, oh no, you should have never, you're six. Um, so much later I read um, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. And I think that one's my favorite because then I could actually appreciate Stephen King um, for more of his like fantasy elements as opposed to just like the strictly horror.
2: That's, That's really interesting. It's a tough one for me because I like I feel like Stephen King's like one of those guys who have been there just like my whole life, you know, yeah. like since I was a real little kid, my my dad was a big Stephen King reader and we'd go to the park nearby and I, we'd like run around together. And then uh, when I got tired, we'd like sit under a tree and he would tell me like these heavily edited, like child's sort of safe versions <laughs> of Stephen King stories, you know. And then,
4: how did your dad end Cujo? No,
2: so <laughs> he did tell me about Cujo. He did. I don't remember how he ended it. Honestly. Cujo, Cujo gets was, adopted by a then nice Then he was family healed
4: and okay. And, yeah, exactly. Exactly. would never bit anyone again.
2: <laughs> this is probably something like that. Yeah. And then I remember, all right, I could, I'm gonna, this could go on way too long. From, but I remember when I was like seven or eight, lived near a library. And the library did this big, like, dump of old books that they were getting rid of. So my friends and I went, like, dumpster diving back there looking for books. And I found a copy of Night Shift, which is a collection of short stories. And I was definitely too young to read that. And it just, like, scared the hell out of me. When I was... And that's a book with, like, a story about, like, a haunted washing machine. So it's, like, mm. it's it, it, it's it's pretty out there. But, um, but yeah, that, that one... I like kept hidden and i like read that and scare the hell out of myself with that. But I think, ooh, God. Uh, this is think, a classic Sean sneak. I'm just this gonna really like, is. I gotta, it is. I gotta it produce really this is. here. He's
1: like, here, yeah, let me so just <laughs> like list these we, We've gotten books. some
3: good short stories, Sean. Sean, what's your favorite? Go. Uh,
2: I am going to go with the short story collection uh, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which it just hit me at the right time. I was on a family trip read read it just like in my own world like the whole time just like reading reading through the book it's got a great story about a uh it's like an epistolary story so it's like letters like a great this, this guy's <laughs> this guy's brother uh was this like kid genius who ended up uh trying to di- discovering this 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 way to like stop all violence in the world um but at the same time he gave that his cure for all human aggression also gave everyone Alzheimer's. And so, like, the whole world is, like, is like you know, collapsing with Alzheimer's. And he ends up, uh, like, shooting himself up with this concentrated cure. And he's writing, as he's, like, he's writing this letter to his brother and saying how he forgives him and he loves him. And as, as his writing gets crazier and, like, less coherent and all that, and then it just ends with, like, childlike scrawl. And that's that one. That one got
3: me. That
2: sounds freaky. Jonesy, flipping it back
3: on you. What do you got here?
4: The stand. The stand. (laughs) Randall Flagg Mm. scares the out of me. Yeah. And, of course, Walter O'Dim from The Gunslinger. Mm. So, I mean, the man in black. that, And I think I read somewhere, maybe this fueled my fear of him, but he scares Stephen King, too. Mm. Like Stephen King, I think, probably in a coke-fueled, what do you call it? uh, Stupor. Uh, said that, you know, Randall Flagg came to him and described himself to him, and then that's how he put him in the books. And, like, that's not cool, man. All you right, shouldn't just tell again. people that. No, man. Uh no So, but, I mean, his so, books, I mean, let's see, what books do I not? Like, I like the the one he did about JFK. I, I yep, can't think of the cool. name because it's a date. I don't know why you would name a book a date, but still. <laughs> uh, and, of course, Shawshank Redemption is a great yeah. short yeah, I mean, that one,
2: yeah. How did you feel about the... Uh, were you a fan of the uh,
4: Stand TV miniseries? Yeah, I've watched both. Uh, I love the old miniseries. That's oh, what me I'd, too. I'd, and love I didn't it. like the remake as much as I liked the original. uh uh-uh. But I, I even like the Langoliers mini miniseries where Cousin Balky yeah. <laughs> tries to kill that guy with the toaster and the blanket. <laughs> yeah, old Am I getting? And maybe this is the wrong deep dive I should have been uh, ready for.
3: Well, speaking of the toaster and the blanket, there's one flying right behind Jonesy, so... You need to go check that out, and we'll be right back.
0: (laughs) Do you fondly remember blowing the dust out of a golden Nintendo cartridge to get it to work? Get the dust out of it. Alright, here we go. Yes, let's get it! Now the screen's gray. Aw, man! Or those long nights when you were up late fighting Ganon, and you'd hear your mom coming downstairs. Whoa. that's mom. Uh, pretend you're asleep. Wait, pause it! Pause it! Turn off the TV! Do you Shh, think she's don't gone? Make a sound. Hmm, I thought I heard two boys down here. Oh, well. Well, Ben and Pat are here to transport you back to those exhilarating moments as the Hyrule Podcaster! Join the two brothers each week as they play through Zelda games in Nintendo's legendary series. Episodes are filled with color commentary, lightly researched facts, personal anecdotes, and more. Hyrule Podcasters is available through Anchor on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Hyrule Podcasters on Facebook and Instagram at Hyrule Podcasters and on Twitter at Hyrule Podcaster.
3: All right. Well, that was quite the expansive deep dive. Thanks so much, Jonesy, Ashley, and Sean, for taking us through a a varying uh, cornucopia of different topics uh, in today's deep dive. So we're gonna to get to everyone's favorite section which is uh, panels and characters. Uh, we are starting with Sean this week Sean. one panel to rule them all. What are you taking?
2: All right um, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with one panel this t- oh, ah. okay you okay. can do
4: it. <laughs> I believe in you.
2: I think I'm gonna go with uh, the panel in the upper left corner on the two page spread. Where Rose is sort of at the center of the vortex. I'm gonna go with that awkward meetup between Barbie, Ken, and Martin Tenbones. It just seems so uncomfortable, right? They're just, they're just kind of like running into each other. It's like they're both like kind of like like found out, and they're just like, oh, you know, uh, what are you doing here? What's what's going on? Um, and I love that. I love that Ken is like big ol' inky, blocky Ken, and uh, Barbie still sort of like lit heroically there, and just Martin Ten Bones. Martin Tenbones. what else can you say, really? He's great. He's great. Uh, Ashley,
3: favorite panel?
1: I am gonna go with, so it's one, two, three pages before the one that Sean just referenced, um, and it's in the bottom, bottom right. So it's when... Um, Chantal is, ha- is on that spiral of that repeated sort of introduction to a story and then Zelda recognizes somehow because they're just that connected that she wants her to tell her a story and so you have I think it's, I can't, you can't really tell I think e- very easily if it's Zelda or Chantal mm-hmm. that is standing and looking kind of like at a like a lace panel mm-hmm. that looks like their, um, their poster bed sort of um, curtain. And so then you see that shadowy figure that then kind of reflects, if you skip three pages ahead of the pages, that, um, that two page spread that Sean was talking about um, shows Zelda and Chantal then embracing one another when they wake up. And it's inverse where that lace curtain mm. is framing them as opposed to shielding yep. them. Um, and so I just think that that first panel, it sneaks up on you. You don't recognize necessarily what it's doing or what it's not showing until you get to that then panel uh, that frames. That's a great call-out, actually. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly.
2: Who do you uh, think is uh, there? Do you see there's like a little face in the corner there, like over?
1: Oh, I know. It, it freaks me out every time. Like I jump every time I see see it.
2: It's kind of like headish and like yeah, a little bit, yeah. I think maybe that's Zelda's mom, right? Because like Zelda has like these fears of
1: Oh, that's a good point. Her, it could. And
2: then so in this moment, like Chantel and Zelda are sort of coming together and they're kind of like protecting each other, mm-hmm. right? And then the mom yeah. is kind of locked out in the back. I don't know. I like
1: that. That's no, I think that's a really good hypothesis. Yeah. I like that. I like that interpretation a lot.
3: Uh, all right, then, Jonesy, what do you got?
4: So my my favorite panel is in the middle of that splash page. Again, I have the, the full volume up, not by issue. So for me, it's 177. Uh, it's where Ken and Barbie are. We see their dual dream. And uh, I mean, the splash page itself is brilliant, uh, illustrating the dichotomy of the two characters. But my favorite part about it is even though they are so close, their character models don't touch at all and it just uh-huh. to me it's kind of describes their entire relationship their yuppiness like as much as they want to perceive how deep they are and how rich their dream life is they're they're not close they're as close as they can be without being close at all so they've never been vulnerable with each other never revealed as, themselves to each other and i think it's wonderfully illustrated with that small detail
3: well and this is who they are this is who they actually are yeah and they aren't they aren't mm-hmm. able to be themselves with each other i mean
4: just that that one black unbroken line between the two of them just i, lo- I like it a lot it's so subtle and understated and a lot like neil's writing i feel like the the art matches that sentiment
3: well jonesy we do this snake draft style so you're you get to go first here for your character for this
4: issue i mean everybody has to agree it's fiddler's uh, fiddler's green right I mean, he might be my whole, my favorite character in the entire volume. Mm. Uh, even though he's not, doesn't really take the spotlight uh, in this issue, I mean, he is pivotal at the ending and realizing uh, what the vortex is and kind of creates that sense of dread that we should have been feeling this entire time. But the fact that he, or I'm sorry, he's Gilbert in this issue, I, I jumped the gun on that. Sorry, spoilers for uh, the audience for the next issue. <laughs> uh, for a book that came out 30 years ago, but you know, I digress. Uh, yeah, I, I like his character the most. And, uh, even in this issue, which I think my favorite character is meant to be Rose because this is, this is her Paul Atreides moment in the desert where her mentat <laughs> brain wakes up and her powers. And, you know, I, I'm, I, yeah, I should call him, uh, should call her, uh, Uh, But instead, I, I, you know, uh, Gilbert is my Duncan Idaho and I don't care who knows it. So, I mean, I, I I just like the character a lot. So I think that was an easy choice for me to make.
3: Excellent. Ashley.
1: Yeah, mine mine is maybe less touching than that, though I really really <laughs> love that. I feel like I'm gonna like come off really cold with mine, but um mine is not even necessarily represented in in an image in this issue, but so much just mentioned by Barbie in her dream to Martin Tenbones when she references uh kernel knowledge and it's if you hear it out loud, it also sounds like carnal knowledge. And I love the wordplay in this issue. And this is another reason, Sean, that I think the show didn't work out as well as you and I had both been hoping is because that wordplay is lost in the show. And the whole issue, as you mentioned, you know, drawing the lines between people and what draws us together, storytelling, etc. I think also this issue, um, really emphasizes, uh, you know, physical and emotional intimacy, as I think both you and Jonesy have referenced in your commentary throughout this episode. And so then things like <laughs> kernel knowledge and then the reference to uh, the Jew of Malta at the end when mm. Fiddler's Green quotes it saying fornication, but that was in another country and besides the wench is dead. Um, I just think those aren't made for nothing. And mm. it's just really fun. So I think just generally the, the wordplay But specifically, (laughs) kernel knowledge is just very funny (laughs) to me. The
2: unseen kernel knowledge, right? Amazing.
1: Uh, Sean? Uh,
2: You know, I'm going to have to go... I'm going to have to say it's a tie with Chantel and and Zelda. Um, I don't think you can have one without the other. I love Zelda's, like, uh, gothic heroine dreams... And you know references, walking in, in in bone orchards, and all those like eighteenth uh, and nineteenth century Gothic novels. And I love Chantel's like cold logic puzzle dreams. And I love the way they come together with that, um, with with you know Zelda changing the story like that. So to me, like that's you know that's that's part of the heart of this issue really is being able to break out of your, your fears and find some kind of connection. I think they're probably the only ones that do it in this issue. And I applaud them for that.
3: Sean, I just wanted to let you know that we got an auto VAR review that happened from the booth on that possible Sean sneak, but it has been overruled. It was not a Sean sneak, even though it was two (laughs) characters. So you're good. I wanted to thank all three of you for joining me today in looking at issue 15, Into the Nights. Uh, we started things off, uh, obviously, introducing our amazing guest, who we'll get to in just a moment. But then having Ashley come in and talk about uh, the footprints in the sand poem that I'm sure everyone in some point has heard. And just the craziness that is the four people that have tried to, at some point, claim authorship, ownership over that poem we then flipped over to Sean, and he took us through a journey of all the different tie-ins that we're getting here in the penultimate episode of Love, Death, and Merging, and how that's really coming to light and being pushed into the forefront as the orders are being taken down, both in the comic, in the way the comic is designed, and in the story. And then Jonesy came in with a beautiful anecdote. Uh, about Bernie Wrightson, who was one of the original creators of Swamp Thing, House of Mystery, House of Secrets, and so many things for DC. Just a, a wonderful artist and creator in the space and were really downstream from a lot of the phenomenal work that he did. And Jonesy. Thank you personally so much for coming on and uh, reliving some uh, of the glory of the comic book days. Anything you want to call out where folks can find you and some of the things you're doing now?
4: Uh, You can find me in the uh, wonderful suburb of Philadelphia, Warman's No, I'm always uh, (laughs) kidding here. Uh, You can always go back and listen to Paper (laughs) Keg, although I don't know why you'd want to do that. You can find me right now. Uh, as the co-host of Twin Vipers, uh, my co-host, Fam and I are really into old, pulpy martial arts films, and for some reason, 90s angsty martial arts films, so you can uh, listen to us talk about them, uh, and you can uh, follow me on all social media, at Jonesy Loves Beer, uh, and interact with me. I'm quite approachable, as Ben, I hope, will attest to. Uh, you know, slide so of my DMs, guys. I'm always available to uh the chat. We can talk Bernie Wrights in as long as you want.
3: Absolutely, yeah. Come join the 70mm D- Discord. It's a great Discord. Lots of good things going on there. All that will be in the show notes if you want to check out Twin Vipers or if you just want to uh, DM Jonesy.
4: And I know all those hosts of 70mm before they were cool. So, you know, if you ever want the, the hot goss.
0: <laughs>
4: Excellent. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sandman Unlocked.
2: <laughs> and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story.
1: Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an Odd Conduit Media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at DEEDE underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Headtrip everywhere at LTheadtrip. Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember never trust the storyteller, only trust the story.
0: Odd Conduit Media.